Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, you know that we're coming down kind of the home stretch of a seven-week sermon series that we've been spending in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Let's do a little bit of review, just kind of catch up. Where have we been uh, for the last five weeks or so? We started uh, by uh, just recognizing that Mark, the, the author of this book, was a first century follower of Jesus. He wrote down one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And that first week, we heard from chapter 1, verse 1, how Mark's aim is to recount the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and since that first week, as we've surveyed Mark's writing, we've heard him explain many of the, just the basics of what it means to follow Ju- Jesus. Who is this man? What did he say? And what should we do as his followers? So the second week, we learned that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's Messiah come to earth to defeat evil and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Then in week three, we learned how the Bible is God's supercharged seed for producing miraculous inward growth in those people of his kingdom, those who follow him. We learned week four that faith is so vital because it is the act of leaning on Jesus as the only one who can provide everything we need, particularly forgiveness before God. Then last week we heard from Ryan how the cross is central to Jesus' identity and his mission because he came as our substitute to atone for our sins. And so week by week we've been learning from Mark the, the significance of these things for following Jesus. We're doing that for two reasons, right? We want to bolster our own faith and become more heartfelt, uh, zealous, passionate followers of Christ. But we're also looking at Mark's writing through the lens of, well, how do we help others? How do we help those that we know who are not following Jesus today to know what it means to follow him, to know what it means to be a Christian? After all, that's why Mark is writing what he is writing. He wants others to know about this man, and he wants others to be persuaded to Follow him. So here we are in week six, and the topic before us today is obedience, and particularly obedience to God's commands. And now when I say that, I can feel the collective enthusiasm in the room rise, right? This is one of our favorite subjects. Let's talk about obedience. But it is vital for us to understand what it is that God wants us to do. If you read any book of the Bible, Um, if you read it yourself, if you're reading it with a friend, you will come up against commands. You will come up against God telling you to do things. And those commands are going to prompt some questions. They're going to prompt some pretty high-level questions like, well, at the end of the day, what are the sum of God's commands? What, What is it that God most wants me to do? And, and then maybe other questions like, well, why does God want me to do that? And so these are the kinds of things that we're going to be thinking about today, meditating on today, as we talk about obedience to God and what it means to follow his commands. Uh, so we'll hear from four different texts in God's word. Uh, John will come and read Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Um, this will be our, our main text. And in this text, Jesus is asked, Um, by a a scribe, 
what is it that God wants us to do? And to answer, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. So that's our second text. Lisa will come and read verses 14, or sorry, 4 through 15 of Deuteronomy 6, so that we can get some context about Jesus' answer. Then third, Anna will come and read Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, which will see a widow doing exactly what Jesus commands. She's doing what Jesus commands. And then lastly, Claire will come and read Psalm 51, verses 12 through 17, which just give us a window into, okay, well, how do we start living in the way that Jesus describes? And so let's prepare our hearts to hear now from God's word. And uh, readers, would you come forward? John, you can start us off. Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and hearing them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vine- vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you far from off the face of the earth. Mark 12, verses 41 through the end of the chapter. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. 
for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Psalm 51, verses 12 through 17. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I shall will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, O Lord, open up my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would not give it, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you and you have not yet opened to Mark chapter 12, I invite you to do that now. We're going to look at a few different portions of the text. Before we dive into the meat of our text, which is in the middle, I want you to see what Mark is doing in the introduction and the conclusion of this passage. Uh, because he's trying to get our attention. He's, he's using words and situations to flag this passage as critically important for us. And so look with me at the beginning, and then we'll, we'll look at the end. Look at verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, meaning Jesus, answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, notice from verse 28 that we're, we're jumping in midstream to a scene that's been unfolding since verse 13. So if you just kind of scan up to verse 13, you'll see that starting in chapter 28, verse 13, the Jewish people are sending various religious leaders to Jesus for the purpose of, quote, trying to trap him in his talk. And we're entering into kind of the end of that dispute. That dispute's been going on for a while. We're entering into the last section of it. Two groups of people have already asked Jesus some tricky religious questions, trying to trip him up, and both times Jesus has answered them well. Uh, we sometimes think, uh, don't we, that we can play games with Jesus, but it never works. Uh, he's too smart for that, too wise. It's part of being God. It's just the way it is. Uh, we, we never sneak anything by him. Then in verse 28, where we began, this scribe comes, and, and Mark is telling us that he's coming with some better intentions, it seems, because he gets to the heart of the matter in the second half of verse 28 when he asks Jesus, which commandment? is the most important of them all. This is a different kind of question. This isn't a trick question. This isn't kind of an off-the-wall hypothetical question, trying to trip Jesus up. This man is asking the question that everyone should be asking, which is, Jesus, what, at the end of the day, does God want me to do. And so the way Mark is setting this up, it should cause us to lean forward in our seats to kind of turn our ear. What is Jesus going to say? What is the thing that God most wants us to do? And so Mark's signaling for us to pay attention. Now, now let's 
Um, as much as you may be leaning forward in your seat, let's skip over the answer and go to the end because I want you to see something at the end, then we'll jump back into the meat of the passage. Look at the last verse that we read, verse 34. It says, this is after Jesus and this man have their dialogue. It says, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him, Any more questions? Okay, so there are a few things here, right? Uh, First, after Jesus' interactions with this man, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I submit to you that that's Mark's version of a mic drop. You, You know, it's over. It's done. After this interaction, the questions stop. The games stop. Jesus' adversaries are silenced. It's just done. The mic has dropped. So the, the, what is it that is happening here that, that just kind of puts a, a period that, that makes that mic drop happen? That, that should be on our minds. But then second, notice the unique response that this man receives from Jesus. Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And if you've been with us through this study of Mark, that should cause all kinds of bells to ring out in your head. Because I feel like almost every sermon we're reading Mark 1.15, which are the first words of Jesus that Mark, that Mark records. Do you remember them? Do you remember what Jesus says first in the book of Mark? He came and he started to proclaim, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see that connection? Jesus shows up in the book of Mark, way back in chapter 1, and he says, here's what I'm here to do. The kingdom of God is at hand. And 12 chapters later, he's telling this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He has not said this to many people, right? This man is an anomaly. He's saying, buddy, you're getting really, really close to the heart of the matter. You're getting really, really close to the whole reason for why I came, my mission, what I'm doing. Of all the people who misunderstood Jesus, of all the people who distracted Jesus, I mean, even his own disciples, we saw that last week when when Peter says, no, 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 surely you won't die. And he has to say, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? How Peter tried to distract Jesus from his mission. Of all the people who disagreed with Jesus, this scribe is a rare contrast. Why is this man so close to the kingdom of God when most seem so far away? What is this whole ordeal about the greatest commandment? What is it, at the end of the day, that God wants us to do? Okay, so now we're ready for the meat of the passage. Let's, let's look at Jesus' answer to the scribe's question. What is the greatest commandment? It comes in verses 29 and 30. So look at verses 29 and 30 with me. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So the greatest commandment, brothers and sisters, the thing that God wants us to do, it's not some set of religious rites 
or regulations or rituals. It's not even some big act that declares and proves our piety or our devotion to God. The greatest commandment is a commandment to love. Specifically, the greatest commandment is a commandment to love God. Even more specifically, the greatest commandment is a commandment to love God with everything we are. That is the greatest commandment. So we think about the idea of loving God. What does it mean to love God? Well, I think we all know this. We, we all know that, that when we love something, we, we treasure that thing. We prize it. It is wonderful to us. We are captivated from it. We, we don't treat the things that we love as duties or a box to check. We delight in what we love. We're eager for what we love. We prioritize what we love. Then at the end of the day, that's what God wants you and me to do, to love him with everything we are. Now, to most people in our world, this is going to sound like a very strange command. A very strange command. Questions may come to mind. Maybe questions are coming to your mind. I'll share with you two questions that come to my mind in Jesus' response. The first goes like this. How is loving God, which seems like an inward reality, connected with the idea of being a good person? I mean, doesn't God want us to be kind and humble and honest? You, you know, to have a moral compass and some personal integrity. How is loving him connected to all of that? That's one question that I have. The second question might be a little more cynical, and it's, but, but it's an honest question, and it is, is God being self-absorbed? I, I mean, if I went to my children and said, listen, kids, the thing I most want you to do is I want you to love me with all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul. I mean, that would be a bad parent. I think we'd all agree that that would be bad parenting. I would be self-absorbed. So what's the difference with God? Why is God not being self-absorbed when he says, listen, the greatest thing you can do is to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Now, I think we'll find help with these questions if we turn to the text that Jesus quotes. He's quoting from one of the primary sources of Jewish identity and Jewish faith. So would you stick your finger in Mark? We're going to come back, but flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're less familiar with the Bible, Deuteronomy is way back at the beginning. It's the fourth book, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you flip there, I just want you to understand how Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 would have landed on his hearers. Because it's not like for us when we read, you know, maybe you're reading a book or an article and one author quotes another and we just kind of take the quote at, at face value. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jesus is tapping into one of the um, kind of core aspects of what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a Jew religiously, what it means to be a Jew as, as a person. 
It, it would be the similar thing if, if I came up to the front of a group of Americans and just said, oh, say, can you see? You, you know, a whole song comes into your mind. You could complete that phrase. Maybe memories come to you of hearing the national anthem every day in your classroom. Or if you served in the military, it might remind you of your comrades and your mission. If you were an athlete, the energy of the big game might still kind of come to you because it's tapping into something much bigger than just those five words, oh, say, can you see, which to themselves are kind of meaningless, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is tapping into something huge when he recites Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I just want to unearth that for us, help us understand what is Jesus tapping into and how does that answer some of these questions questions about God's greatest command. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to read, reread verses 4 to 15, but I'm going to stop after verse 9 and we're going to talk about it a little bit, okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. We have some more kids in, in the service this week with us. Kids, you're included in this. Do you, do you hear that? You're not too young to make sense of what we're talking about today. You are not too young for God's uh, eyes. You are not too young to obey God, to understand what it means to obey God. Okay? I want you to see yourselves here. All right, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, look back over those verses that we just read. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is in verses 4 and 5. I, I trust you all saw that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But did you notice how quickly the topic of love in verse 5 transitioned to obedience in verse 6? Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What does that transition mean? What's the significance of moving seamlessly from love to command in obedience. What is that significance? What does it mean? Well, I think it means that we obey those we love. Right? We obey those we love. And I, th I think for us in our day and age, this is a profound idea. Because in our culture, there is widespread contempt, is there not? Contempt for obedience and authority, and what we tend to esteem is rebellion and self-expression. We are not a, a people who make a lot of sense of authority, who, who understand and willingly submit, right? I hate filling out my taxes. 
Could it be, however, that the reason we don't want to obey anyone else is simply that we love ourselves more than anything else or anybody else? Could it be that our obedience issue is actually a love issue? There is a natural connection between love and obedience. God knows it. He put it there, and it's right here at the heart of the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. In other words, obedience to God begins with love for God. Jesus said it this way very plainly in John 15, verse 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is not Jesus giving anyone a guilt trip like, oh yeah, you love me? Prove it. Follow my commandments. That's how I know you love me. He's giving a simple, if they, if A, then B. If you love me, then you will follow my commandments. Obedience flows from love. Now, if that's true, then the opposite is also true, is it not? Disobedience to God flows from a lack of love for God. Sin flows from disregard for God, hatred of God, some lack of love for God. And and so to to that first question, if, if loving God seems like a strange command, if it seems disconnected from being a good person, it's because we tend to ignore the interconnectedness of love and obedience. And so that's the answer to that first question. You, you can't be a good person as God defines it without loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength because we obey who we love. Okay, do you see that? Okay, let's... Let's try to answer the second question now. Is it right for God to command us to love him, or is he being self-absorbed? So we're just going to pick up where we left reading it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see what we find to answer that question. Verse 10. Again, Moses speaking to the Israelites. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst and is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. What we find here is a really condensed Retelling of Israel's history. From its beginning, Israel was a nation at the bottom of the bottom. They were a nation of slaves under the brutal rule of Egypt. They were impoverished. They had no homeland. They had no freedoms. They had no nobility or honor. They were considered a nation of expendable people. 
To be an Israelite meant that the only future you faced was one of generational poverty and generational slavery. You were born a slave, you would die a slave. Your children would be slaves, their children would be slaves. There was a 0% chance that you would know anything else than this kind of destitute poverty and slavery. The whole nation was horribly oppressed for hundreds of years. They were rock bottom. But God delivered them. Verse 12, he brought them out of the house of slavery. He swore to their forefathers to give them their own land. And now, there with Moses, they are about to receive, quote, great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards, olive trees that they didn't plant. Why? Because God freely, he didn't have to, he freely chose to give this nation freedom and to bless them abundantly. He gave them what they could have never gotten for themselves. I mean, even even a rebellion in Egypt gone right could not have produced this kind of future for these people. This was divine intervention. They were to receive wealth instead of poverty, fullness instead of hunger, rest instead of labor, hope instead of despair, all freely from God before he issued any command. Simply because he loved them. And so what we see here is that God took this nation of slaves from rock bottom and he made them his special people. He elevated them above every nation on earth. God pledged himself to this people. And so what they should be asking is, what more could we want? What more could we want than what this God is giving us, what this God is for us? What more could we ask for than to belong To such a God. And so when Jesus says, hey, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being, it isn't God being self-absorbed or self-serving. It is God acknowledging and insisting that his people live true to the kind of relationship he has with them. Think about it this way. You have a husband and wife, and the husband's running around with other women. It is right For the wife to say, you need to stop it. You are to love me above any other woman on earth. That's right for her to say that. And just so, it is right for God to say to his special people, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. You should love me with everything you are. Simply because that's the kind of relationship he has with these people. He has pledged himself to them. They are his people. He is their God. This is the way things are. They are to love him. And so no, God's not being self-absorbed. He's acknowledging and, and pressing into this relationship that he has with his people. So that's the answer to the second question. And and, and hopefully these answers help us. They help us wrestle with 
this great command that Jesus is elevating before us. Um, but I also recognize that, that having answered them, there might be a third question on our minds, which is essentially, well, so what? Why does all that matter for me? You know, th- this is interesting for how Jesus' words would have landed on a Jewish audience, but most of us are not Jewish. We don't share the same national identity or, or history as Jesus did with the Jewish people, so why should 21st century Americans care about obeying God? Why should we care about loving God? But now you might be thinking, Nate, we're in church. I mean, that's Sounds like a silly question. But I want us to understand, brothers and sisters, that we are surrounded every day by people who think that God is largely irrelevant to their lives. They don't have a rich history with God to look back on like the Jews did. They don't see any reason why they should obey God, much less love Him. And so what does all this have to do with modern people like us and like the people we rub shoulders with every day? Well, the story of God in ancient Israel is extremely relevant to every person on planet Earth. It reveals a much deeper reality, and it reveals a much worse slavery that all humanity is subject to. You see, even with all of our privileges, these houses of abundance, the fields, the olive trees that they didn't plant, even with instruction from God himself in the law, even with the kings that that God would raise up for them, even with the prophets that he would send again and again to them to try to get them on the right path, the people of Israel could not obey this great commandment. They could not, in the end, love the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They were unable And so in the end, the Old Testament highlights that this slavery in Egypt is nothing compared to the slavery to sin. And brothers and sisters, sin, it's not an ancient Israelite problem, is it? It's a universal human problem. As humans, every one of us was created to enjoy loving and serving God with all that we are. The problem is you, I, and every other person since the fall, we've replaced God. We've found something else. We all have masters. We're all subject to something. There's, There's something that every person lives for. There's something that every person is sworn to protect and will sacrifice all else for. There is something that they love above everything else. But it is not God. The Bible calls this sin, and we are enslaved to it, to the point that if you, in your own strength, and perhaps you've tried this, if you, in your own strength, try to obey God, if you try to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, left to yourself, you will find it an exercise in futility. It is so frustrating. Can't do it. Like Israel, we are people at the bottom of the bottom. You see, left to themselves, 
The Israelites, they were generational slaves. But left to ourselves, we are generational sinners. Left to ourselves, we are born sinners. We will die sinners. Our children will be sinners. Our grandchildren will be sinners. As Ephesians 2.12 puts it, we are, we are without hope and without God in the world. The wonder of it all, the wonder of it all is that just like ancient Israel, God has not left us to ourselves. Jesus, the very man telling this scribe the greatest commandment, came to earth to free humanity from our slavery to sin. In fact, Jesus is having this conversation with this scribe in Jerusalem, where in only days he will be beaten, killed, and three days later rise from the grave. And he did that so that every human, Jew, American, Indonesian, Indian, any human who comes to him in faith, like we talked about two weeks ago, will be set free from the bondage to sin. And as Israel's liberation from Egypt showed them firsthand the love and goodness of God, so for us, in a greater way, Jesus' sacrifice shows us the loveness, the love and goodness of God, does it not? Like Israel, God saved us simply because he loved us. There was nothing lovely about us. He had compassion on us and sent Jesus to save us. In fact, I mean, here's where things get really crazy, I think. Through Christ, God has pledged himself to you all in a greater way than he pledged himself to Israel. You see, to Israel, God pledging himself to them meant that he dwelt in their temple. There there was a place in their neighborhood where God took up residence. They could go to him and ask him questions. They could go and worship him. And, And that's pretty great if God lives in your neighborhood, right? But it is greater, far greater, for God to take up residence in your heart which is what he does for every believer in Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells you. I mean, how much closer can God get to you than that? And so we see through the sacrifice of Christ, through the indwelling of the Spirit, God has pledged himself to you. You are now part of his people. You are part of his treasured possession if that has happened through faith in Christ for you. What that means is that because he is your God and because you are part of his people, you simply are to love him with everything you are. This is now part of the relationship. That's who he is to you. He's your God. You are one of his people. And so when when we hear Jesus say to us as Christians, as believers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is not a commandment that our ears could hear that we should not be more eager to obey. It's who he is for us. He is the one we love.
All right, so that's, that's the bulk of what Jesus spends his time with. But if, if we want to be true to our text in Mark 12, if you want to flip back to Mark 12, Jesus gives us a bonus commandment, right? He doesn't just talk about loving God. He talks about loving our neighbors. So look at verse 31. He just jumps right to it. There, there's, no, there's no break. He says the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you are. And verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so before we conclude, I just want to ask us, why did Jesus feel the need to add a second commandment? I mean, this is kind of above and beyond what the scribe asked for. Um, was this just kind of a, a spiritual bogo? Like, was Jesus feeling extra generous? Hey, you asked for one, I'll give you two. Um, I'm just that kind of guy. Um, did he feel like he had a captive audience, and so he'd just like, kind of like sneak in another one? Um, and, and on the other side of things, why stop at two? Why, why not three or four or five? Why do these two commandments go together? Well, remember Jesus' final words to the scribe. What did he tell him? He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is building a kingdom. The first command describes and helps unlock entrance into that kingdom. It, it, it reminds us of the goodness of God and the saving work of Jesus and that we are now his, that we should love him with all of our being. But that command on its own might only result in a people who have Holy huddles with God out in the woods alone. It's not a kingdom, right? A kingdom, to build a kingdom, you need a community of people living together under the rule of a king. And that's where the second command is driving. It describes the kind of community. It describes the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building. It is a kingdom where people love God and love one another. And you don't get the full picture of the kingdom without both of those commands. Now think about how great this kingdom must be. I mean, can you imagine a better place than living in a community of people who always loves you perfectly and whom you always love perfectly? Kids, many of you have siblings. Can you imagine a day or a week or a month where every one of your siblings loved you perfectly and you loved them perfectly? No selfishness, no anger. You would just willingly sacrifice for it. Oh, you want this toy that I really want? Have it. It is my delight to share with you. It's hard for me to imagine a family like that, much less a kingdom, right? I mean, a nation of people that operate like that? This is utopia. This is paradise. It would be so good. And this is exactly the kingdom that Jesus Christ is building. 
It is not a kingdom of religious rules. Obedience is not in this kingdom about religious rules, rites, rituals. Obedience in this kingdom is about love. Perfect love. I mean, even the rules of the kingdom make that plain, right? The rules of the kingdom say, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you understand this principle, then you, like the scribe, are not far from the kingdom of God. Now we're almost done, but in conclusion, I just want to point out that if you're here this morning, and maybe you've followed Jesus for a while, maybe you've even read this text before, and these concepts are somewhat familiar to you. They make sense. And if that's true, I am so glad for that. It is so good of God that you would be here and say, yeah, love God, love neighbor. It's hard, I don't do it perfectly, but I get it. That, I, that makes sense to me. You need to know, brother and sister, that for almost everyone else in your circles, this is a wildly different version of obedience than what they think of if they were to guess at the most important command from God. You see, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, most people in our city, most people that you rub shoulders with, think that Christianity is some sort of self-improvement plan or in some way is just going to make them outwardly a better person, outwardly more loving, outwardly moral compass. I don't know, fill in the blank. But talk to them and you'll, you'll hear this. If, if you run into someone who, who goes to church, I, I've run into multiple neighbors who I've either asked them, oh, you know, did you go to church growing up? Why, why not? Um, and, and they'll tell me, yeah, and I'd, I'd probably send my kids. I mean, that's so, that's so strange in Pittsburgh. Like lots of people who went to church no longer go to church, but they're willing to send their kids, right? And you ask, well, why do you want to do that? Like, did you get some value? And they'll say, well, I think it helped make me a good person. I think it helped me give me some morals, and so I want my kids to have that. There's no love on the radar here, guys. There's no love. God's not even there, maybe. It's just self-improvement. It's religious ritual, and it's empty. Without the supernatural love brought about through faith in Jesus Christ, our friends, they're wasting their time to do these things. I mean, it's tragic. It's so sad. And so do you and I, do we have compassion for these people? That was Jesus' heart. He had compassion for these people. That's why he's there talking to them. That might mean that we have to lovingly tell someone that their religious practices aren't worth a whole lot without heartfelt love for God. Honestly, I don't know if there's an easy way to do that. But if we love them, we'll have those kinds of conversations. It may mean that we invite our friends to repent from loveless religion and to ask God for a heart that truly does love him above all else. We didn't talk about it yet, but I think that's what David is getting at in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance, and he says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, where I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David knows that God doesn't want religious practices. He wants your heart. He wants to have a soft heart towards him. He wants your friends to have a soft heart towards him, to love him. He wants us to obey him, not because we're willpower people, not because we have a moral compass, but because we love. Because we love him. His kingdom is a kingdom of love. And only Jesus can give us hearts that love God and love others. And as odd as it may seem to us, I don't think most people understand that. I think that's a foreign idea. It might surprise you how much it surprises them. But if you and I are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus, we are commissioned, we are sent to these people to tell them the good news, that they don't need to submit to ritual. They don't need to submit to mere regulation. Christ died so that they can experience the fullness of his kingdom, a kingdom of love. And so to that end, brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's intercede for our world. Let's repent in any way that is appropriate as we hear this word. I will begin and then you're encouraged to follow. King Jesus, we love you. God, we want to love you more. And um, Lord, you know that in preparing and, and thinking about this text, there are so many ways in which my love to you is incomplete, in which there are ways that I have not loved you with all of my being as I should. And Lord, I ask for, for me and anyone else who, who feels that resonating in their heart that you would forgive us that you would look on our lackluster love at times, forgive us and empower us to love you the way you deserve, the way that is fitting, because you are our God. We are your people. Help us love you above all else. Help us love one another as ourselves. And in this way, would we see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.